Thanks for clicking play on PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Ball Publishers. In this episode, PageCast co-producer Nicola Brins interviews Bobby Palmer, author of Isaac and the Egg. Isaac and the Egg is a story about love, friendship, and baked beans, a parable about learning to live again. This is a story of a broken man's transformative journey into the woods. Enjoy the episode. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you might be listening from. My name is Nicola and I'm the co-producer of PageCast, brought to you by Jonathan Paul Publishers. Today I find myself on the banks of the River Thames in London at Carmelite House, and I have the absolute pleasure of being joined in company by Bobby Palmer to chat about his debut novel, Isaac and the Egg. Isaac and the Egg is a story of grief, loneliness, masculinity, and the inability to open up even when times are very hard. It's also a story about hope the power of humour, and about two extremely dysfunctional friends who come together at exactly the right time. At the start of the book, two things happen. Our lead character, Isaac, loses his wife. Then, on one of the darkest nights of his life, he stumbles into the woods and finds something else, a two-foot-tall egg. It's genuinely nothing like I've ever read before. Bobby, welcome to PageCast. Hello, thanks for having me. Before we jump into chatting about books and, and how you put the story together and everything uh, that was you know, surrounding putting this remarkable story together, tell us more about Bobby and your story and how this came to fruition. So uh, I'm, my background is in journalism, so I, didn't, I, I never really thought I was going to be a, a novelist and um, stumbled into it accidentally, really. I... Uh, when freelance and um, a pandemic happened um, and I basically ended up with uh, an idea for a book and a lot of free time. I, 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 have, a, I have a great love of films and I, I wanted to write a book that had this sort of self-conscious film trope in it of um, E.T. Uh, and, and It's a Wonderful Life and this idea of a strange creature or another coming into someone's life and helping them at, 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 at a hard time. But I also wanted to write something that was inspired by uh, Grief is the Thing with Feathers by Max Porter and, and A Monster Cause by Patrick Ness, which is like, um, you know, grief as a monster uh, and, and quite dark stories. So I was like, I, I, I want to write that, but funny. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that didn't really answer your question. I'm a journalist normally, <laughs> but now I'm a novelist and I'm, I'm enjoying it very much. Is it cool to say that? <laughs> it's very cool. Yeah. I think, and I, I sometimes wonder whether I just, I just did it so I can be like, I'm an author. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds cool. It's, it's a cool, it, yeah. it definitely sounds as that has more of a twist to it than I'm just a journalist. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. See, as a journalist, you normally, you know, do the questioning. Um, <laughs> is it something that you've had to get used to being on the other side of the firing line? Yeah, I I think I definitely the start when, you know, before the book was coming out and when the book was coming out and I, I first started doing interviews, I'd find myself like dodging questions or asking as many questions <laughs> as, as I was as I was answering. Um I've I don't know, I think when you when you write a book, especially when you're an author and you write a book, you have almost like the book is like a shield between you and everything else. So like I'm I, I I'm happy to talk about the book. I can talk about the book at length and then when anyone asks me about myself, I'm like, I'm not very interesting. The book's so much more interesting than me. I'm just like a guy. <laughs> a guy who wrote a book and it's yeah, doing exactly. incredibly, incredibly well. You've received a lot of acclaim, positive reviews. I mean, I spent the last week walking around London looking for an extra copy to get signed for a friend and I couldn't find one because <laughs> they're all sold out everywhere. It was not the first book you wrote. It was the second book you wrote, the first one didn't kind of get lapped up as, as well as you would have liked it to. How did you go about 
starting that second one and being like, okay, cool, that one, the first one didn't really land, let me try this all again? Or was it all kind of part of the same process? So I I went through a, a few, a couple of years really where I, a lot changed for me professionally, especially. So I, I used to work at a magazine called Shortlist, which was a, a free magazine you used to get on the tube. Um, and it was great. It was a, a fantastic team. It was a really, really good magazine. And it closed down because it's a really hard time for magazines. Um, and that, that took me totally by surprise. I, I was, you know, one day I had a job and suddenly me and all of my colleagues didn't have jobs. So I ended up as a freelance journalist. And it was at that point where I thought maybe I'd like to try doing something a bit more creative. So I started writing this other book, which was also, you know, fairly filmic, but but a bit somewhat madder than this one. It had a lot of time travel. It was very long. Uh, it was... I don't know, probably not as readable. <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I submitted it to agents. I got an agent. It went out to publishers. No one wanted to publish it, which is crashing. Yeah. You know, it's like the no, worst thing that could possibly happen to a writer. Dark, but dark place, you might Yeah, imagine. yeah. And, and you know, I, I had a realisation, I think, at that point that you, when you're writing a book, you're not writing for yourself. You're writing for a reader. And I hadn't really considered... You know, I was like, this is a fun, crazy idea. I hadn't looked at anything that was being published. I had I, I wasn't even reading a lot of, of contemporary fiction at the time. And um, I think there was sort of an arrogance in the in the just being like, someone will want to read yeah. what, what, I, yeah. what I have to write. Um, so that was a real learning curve. You know, it was crushing. And I think if it hadn't been for COVID, it would have taken me a lot longer to bounce back. But the nature of COVID and being a freelancer meant that I lost all of my work and the pubs were closed. <laughs> so I had, you know, I had days and days and days and I had another idea. And that was the idea that became Isaac and the Egg, this this filmic uh, grief story. And I just went, well, I mean, and, and this was at the point where the, the, the first book was still out on submission, but things were looking less and less yeah. likely. And it was, it was really a, a, a coping mechanism, both with that and with quite a bleak time in the world mm -hmm. and with just like, um, it was a real escape. So I, I think I wrote, the, the other book took me about two years. This took me three, four months. During that time, we were just surrounded by grief all around us. Yeah. Um, did you use that to kind of fuel your day-to-day? -day? I wouldn't I wouldn't have recognised it as such at the time, mm. but definitely. I mean, I, I think I think there are so many books that have come out in the last couple of years that read, you know, they're, they're lockdown books and they're COVID books, but they're, they're not about, you know, COVID or lockdown. And I think you read this book and it... it Almost amazing to me reading it back how much of my personal experience at the time is fed into it because um, this is a book about an immense grief. I haven't suffered that grief, but I was a man shut in his his yeah. house in his dressing gown, losing his grip on reality, and that's that's what Isaac Isaac has. So you know, I, I don't think I could have written it as well, definitely, if the circumstances hadn't mm -hmm. been like that. And then you know, I, I wrote it in that really short span of time, which I think helped because it's quite an intense short book. And then my agent, who I already had from the first book, we sent that out. And it was the exact opposite experience to the first one. I think within 24 hours, we'd oh, had nice. an offer. So it was it was like, and I think that oh, that was always going to feel great, but it felt so good because I'd, I'd experienced the opposite. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, it felt more like earned and more well, like, oh, we've got that. It surreal as well. You might, Very. Did you... Did you you know, do a double take, but like, no ways. Like well, it, it was especially surreal because we were still um, broadly locked down. Mm -hmm. So every, you know, I didn't meet my my editor for a, for about a year oh, <laughs> or no. something. Like, um, we, you, you know, all of the, the pub yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was all all these conversations happened over the phone or on Zoom. So it felt like, it, yeah, it didn't feel right. It felt like that, you know, this this is 
theoretically happening, but I, you know, like someone was going to tell me I was being pranked. But. I think it's so important that you, because you say you, you obviously see yourself, a lot of yourself in Isaac, even though you haven't experienced this immense sense of loss. And I think it's so important to remind everyone and kind of acknowledge that grief can be felt in, and experienced in so many different ways. It's not necessarily just the loss of someone close to you. I think this book can benefit so many people, especially if they've gone through some sort of traumatic event like we all have over the last few years or a drastic change in their lives, you know, change in the way that we do things day to day, so rather than just the loss of a loved one. Do you agree mm. on that? Yeah, and I, I think a, a key thing is when I formulated the idea for the book, when I first came up with it, it was a book about masculinity. It was, you know, grief really became a, a tool with which Isaac, the lead character, would be put in a really dark place because I thought about just making him him depressed. But I, I, I think it's almost like there, there's still a bit of an aversion to that, you know, a character being depressed for no reason. And I think things are changing in that respect. But it felt like plot-wise, you the reader would need to understand from the get-go why Isaac was in such a dark place. And then I'd be able to explore all these themes around, okay, what does a young man in the modern world do when he's in a dark place? Because... Isaac is very typical of, of a lot of young men, myself included. He doesn't take things very seriously. He makes a joke out of everything. He doesn't talk. Uh, he, he doesn't talk to anyone. He, talk, he, he The only person he talks to is Mary, and he loses Mary's his wife in the book. He loses her, and the only person he wants to talk to about losing her is her. So um, I think it, you know all of these elements of grief, depression, and loss butting up against modern masculinity is is really where the initial idea for the book came from. And, and then that's why the egg, who is sort of a, an E.T. pastiche, uh, comes in because Isaac's, you know, one of those man-child type men who really falls back on comfort films and, you know, pop culture. Uh, so he almost creates this creature that he imagines a man like him might need in a time like that. It would be fascinating if you had everyone who's read the book draw what they think the yeah. looks like. <laughs> I've had I've had I've been tagged in some uh sort of, you know, quote unquote fan art of yeah. the of the egg already. And it's it's amazing because it's always so different. And I have such a clear image in my head. And sometimes I'm like, did I not, did I not, you know, describe it well enough? But, um, but no, I think, I think it's, um, it's just one of those things where people really connect with it, which is amazing. Yeah. Create their own, their own picture. And it's fascinating of it. because our own stories influence what the egg looks like. Mm, yeah. My husband yeah. read the book, drew the egg without <laughs> showing me. Then I read the book after him. Because I got it sent by the publishers and the minute he saw it, he read it. And I was like, well, I'm supposed to actually read this, but it's fine. You read it first. And he drew the egg and he said, Nick, I'm drawing the egg, but I, before we start speaking about the book so that you don't influence what my egg looks like. <laughs> then I did the same, read the book, drew what the egg looks like. And it's so vastly different because it's also vastly different experiences coming in to reading Isaac and the Egg. I'm going to need to see those pictures. Oh, send them to um, me. Yeah, I, I think it's intentional as well because the, you know, there's this big question throughout the book, is is the egg real or has Isaac made it up? And, you know, I don't like delving into that too much because I think it's for the reader to decide. But I think Isaac creates, if he does make it up, you know, he creates the egg from all of these pop culture references, just as I did. So, you know, I knew that the egg would speak like E.T., but sort of look like a, a cross between a Furby and Gizmo, yes. um, would have these long arms like, you know, Mr. Tickle. But, I mean, it was it was Baby Yoda that, that inspired the egg in the first case. It was it was during the sort of big Baby Yoda phenomenon yeah. of a few years ago when there were all these memes and everyone was going crazy over this really cute, merchandisable character. That was around the time when I first had the idea for this book because I was thinking about writing a, something very 
dark and serious and and, and full of reality that also had like a, a comedy creature slapstick creature in it and the, the baby yoda thing was like i wanted it to be you know i wanted it to be something in there that looked like merchandise that looked mm-hmm. like it was like for kids and just shouldn't be there at all uh, and the comedy comes from yeah. from the, the sort of dichotomy which allows us all to recognize that that is also okay mm, yeah and for for 200 pages about you make us all introspect you make us all think what would we do in this instance you know what would we do if we lost our spouse what would we mm. do in in this world of chaos page 12 which was i was quite bleak that it came so early <clears throat> these profound quotes just came in really early and i hate having interviews and then i quote from like the 12th page because <laughs> then everyone's like she read the first right. yeah. shame but i'm gonna read from page 12 because it was just let me just read and we'll take it from there An awful sensation grips Isaac, one he's starting to recognize. It feels as if the forest floor is giving way beneath his feet, as if every tree around him has suddenly been wrenched from the ground, as if everything on the whole earth has been flattened except for Isaac, and he's been left with nothing but a wide expanse of nothingness, which rips through him with the force of a thousand winter winds of a thousand icy rivers. Imagine all of this contained within one body. It starts with a tremor in his gut, as if his stomach has reached the highest point of the upper atmosphere and has nowhere to go but down. Then, with a lurch, down it goes. His heart drops with it. Everything inside him is dropping, his very core collapsing beneath him, and he's struggling to breathe. Gravity is certainly working against Isaac now. In the middle of the clearing, he's too far away from the tree against which he steadied himself before. Isaac gasps, as if he's drowning, choking as if all the air has been sucked out of the clearing. He drops to his knees. He does not drop the egg. If anything, he's clutching it harder than before. Now there's something so profoundly simple about the story and yet you tackle it with such complex emotions and experiences related to death and grief with such ease. Have you always tackled such intense topics in your writing? I mean, you, you're an absolute natural. <laughs> um, well, the first thing I say is that's the reading I, I do when I ask yeah. to do a reading, but that's mainly because I don't want to spoil anything that comes later. Yeah. But, so. No is the answer. I I always, especially when I was a journalist, and I, I'm not doing as much journalism anymore. But when I was I was doing it full time, I all I ever cared about was making people laugh, mm-hmm. and I I always thought of myself as a, a writer of just funny stuff, but not serious stuff, never serious stuff. Started when I started writing this book, I think it was lighter. Um, I at least conceived it to be a, a black comedy, and. I'd probably say partly it was it was getting to know the characters as it as it went on, but also it was getting to realise that it was a a different story to what I thought it was going to be, and I, th- I think that was the nature of you know when I decided it was a story about grief, and when I I came up with Isaac and Mary and what their relationship was, it suddenly turned into this thing where it's like, well, I can't just skip over the fact that his his wife has died. You know, it, it, it's the worst thing that could possibly happen to anyone. I knew that it needed to be darker. And then when I, I started making it a bit more serious, it just became something else. And, and now all of my writing is totally different to what my writing was before. You know, now, I, now I'm, I'm writing, you know, my second book is, is probably, that I'm working at the moment, is, is probably just as, not quite as bleak, but definitely as serious and, and touching on quite ter- serious topics. And I feel weirdly more natural now writing in that space. And it's been amazing to hear people so especially, you know, when you're writing about something like grief, which so many people experience, but which I've never experienced the the type of grief that, that this book is about. 
the most amazing thing has been people saying that it that they you know people who have been through very serious loss saying that it helped them or that it, it, it was totally right because you know you always worry about writing outside of your comfort zone or, or stepping on other people's toes not not quite getting it right so it, you know it's been amazing to have the the feedback I've had but yeah I, I thought I was I thought I was just writing something funny in, in the first case and then and then it caught up with me the following quote as well he finds it hard to speak he doesn't want to admit that getting rid of Mary's shoes would mean she'll have nothing to wear if she were theoretically to ever wander back through the front door I'm a huge Joan Didion fan yeah and I'm not sure if you drew yeah. from her yeah. work it was really important to me when I decided it was going to be a, a novel that really did tackle grief head-on um, it was really important to me that I that I get it right. So I, I sort of mined the archive of great writers who have written about grief, but but not just in a fictional sense. People memoirs about grief, essentially. So Joan Didion, The Year of Magical Thinking, yeah. was a big inspiration. There's of course the the shoot that is a, a, a direct sort of reference to it. The the idea that her husband she can't throw away her husband's shoes because you know he, he'll need to wear them when he gets back um and that, that idea of magical thinking of, of your brain sort of losing touch with reality when when grief takes over is 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 very much present in my book and, and in that book mm. uh c.s lewis mm. um wrote a, a memoir of grief called a grief observed which was all about because he was very very christian and, and it's all about his faith and how he he grapples with his faith when his wife dies and there's there's a lot of that in this book as well um, and then there's a fantastic memoir, which was probably the most influential on me, which is called Say Her Name by Francisco Goldman. Um, I don't, people don't really talk about it that much, but it, it had a really, really profound effect on me. It's by a guy who his girlfriend is sort of, you know, she's in her 20s, 30s. She dies in a freak accident um, on holiday one day while he's with her. Um, and it's just the hardest book I've ever read and the most raw uncomfortable reading experience because it's all about you know how he just finds himself falling over in public or screaming on train platform you know he, he mm. totally just loses it as, as as you would um and it's sort of half that and and half just a testament to how much he loved this woman um and that that really came across in all of those books that I was reading was that none of them were books about death they're all books about love and that was a real turning point for me and, and something that I tried to infuse this book with was like, there is a death in it, but it doesn't need to be a book about death. It needs to be a book about how much Isaac and Mary were in love. Yeah. And, that, and, and that's what I tried to do. And then it became this really weird writing experience where I sort of had to, in my own head, like imagine, imagine yeah, imagine. And, and it was a stranger reading experience for my, um, for my now wife, <laughs> Nina, because, you know, there's so much of us in it and, and she was sort of the dead character. So I think um, it was really weird for her, but also it was a cathartic writing experience because it, it makes you, and I hopefully reading experience as well, because I think it makes you, you know, appreciate what you do have and, and that some people do lose. Yeah. And you wake up in the morning and you see your wife and you think, okay, cool. Yeah. Everything's all right. Yeah. Day. Yeah. Yeah. What it also does is, it, and what the world does is tell us that grief is in these five stages. It flips that on its back and it shows grief can be happy and it can be sad. It can be raw. It can be you punching your fist through a wall in your kitchen and it can be you speaking to an imaginary egg and it's more nuanced and it's deeply personal. Did this make writing the book a little bit more challenging? Then, you know, but, but then I guess you drew on all these great writers to to guide you in this, this I don't know, yeah. The funny thing with that is, is when I first envisaged the egg, when I first had, okay, what? why is this creature here? 
it was the five stages of grief mm. in the first case. So it was, you know, the um, the scene you just mentioned, the, the trashing of the kitchen, which comes quite early on. That was anger. And then there was, you know, the depression stage where they're sort of wallowing on the sofa together watching films. And then there were, you know, denial, obviously, uh, which is probably the, the, the thing that runs through the book, the, the idea of denial and grief. But it was really in the, yes, in the reading, but also in the writing and in getting to know the characters that, it changed and it became more nuanced and it became more human and it, and it became this thing of like uh, everyone experiences everything totally differently. But also like, I think it would have felt too schlocky and schmaltzy for it, mm. to, it to have a very linear, you know, like mm. Isaac at the start is sad and by <laughs> the end he's happy uh, because that's not how life works. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I, you know, I hope it is a hopeful book, but I think it's, it needs to earn that hopefulness. And it also, I, I just wanted it to feel real, which is a really strange thing to say about a book that has a two foot tall talking egg in it. Yeah. But um, it would, the most important thing for me was that you'd go, yeah, I can imagine that. Or I, I can imagine that Isaac was my, you know, my brother or my, my cousin or my friend going through this. And that the, I think if it wasn't real, if everything else didn't feel real, the egg would be too strange. If everything else feels totally real and then you have this one element that's, that's crazy, hopefully it works. I was reading it and my husband kept on asking me, where are you, where are you? And I said, and he said, have they gone out together yet? Said, no, they haven't yet, shush. And then I got to that and it's my favourite scene mm. in the entire book is when they hit the town together. Yeah. <laughs> and you just imagine the sun hat and the glasses. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the, and the, and this probably comes comes back to, you know, I, I really love films. Mm. Um, and to be honest, if I, if I had any ex- experience of, screenwriting I probably would have done this as a film instead but I, you know it was just that you know I knew how to write a book so I was like I'll write it as a book um but it's it, you know it's got films throughout it and and the way that I conceptualized it in the first place was very much I could see scenes in my head it was when I had that that baby Yoda epiphany like what if you what if you had baby Yoda in a really serious story and then a, a straight away I saw them trashing the kitchen I saw this scene where they sort of tear apart the wardrobes through uh, going through all of Mary's old clothes and him pushing the egg on a swing in uh, in town and then I, I guess a, probably a couple more scenes but I just and I mean obviously the opening on the bridge which is oh, it's a wonderful life you know that's exactly how it's a wonderful life starts so I had all these images and then really it was just a matter of um how do I how do I stitch a cohesive plot together out of out of these these and, and I think that's a you know that goes back to to what I was saying before it was those are all funny bits. You know, I saw all those funny slapstick mm. comedy bits. And then really it was in the writing that I brought in the, the actual sort of yes. heft of the story. And it's mm. like, I always do the, um, what came first, Isaac or the egg thing. <laughs> and it was the egg that came first, but you know, yeah. Isaac came later. And I love beans and toast in the toast <laughs> in bed. I mean, they're just, there's such nice glimmers of, of laughter that intertwine with these serious themes so well that yeah. you just do it so effortlessly. The beans on toast thing is really funny because I just, I wrote it into the book and it's a, it's a, a, there's a big presence of beans on toast in the book just because I was thinking if I lost the will to live, you know, if, if I just could not even get myself out of bed, what would I make? What's easy to make? And it's like, you know, just slot yeah. some beans on toast. Uh, so it was, it was really a, you know, just a, a sort of a thing that I didn't really think twice about when I wrote it. But now it, it's become this enduring image of the, but you know, the, the published book has these, these yeah. beans on toast end papers. People tag me on Instagram when they make beans on toast and they go, like, I'm making beans on so toast. Smart. Like, yeah. And, uh, you know, 
tons of beans with your book to them. Yeah, well, I haven't, I haven't had like a, a, a Heinz uh, sponsorship deal yet, but um, anyone hopefully. from Heinz listening, please yeah, get there in you touch. go. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, let me ask you uh, the next book as a fox. Yes. Versus, yeah, versus yeah, the yeah. egg. Yeah. So I think in it, in everything I write, I want I want it to have that element of something weird, something different, but within a a story that feels very human mm. um so in my in my next book i'm writing about a a young man and his father who is ill and they their sort of fraught relationship over the years the young man lives in the city his his dad's very much a product of, of the countryside upbringing um, that he had the young man's uh, mum goes missing so he she's sort of the interpreter between the two of them he he goes home to to help his dad and try and find out where his mum's gone and at the same time a uh, very enigmatic fox comes into his life um who sort of might just be the key to unlocking his past and and uh finally making up for all the lost time with his dad yeah so it's all uh there's a lot of forest and british countryside in it and then you know in the same way that i had those 80s film influences in the um in Isaac and the Egg I'm 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 drawing on a lot of uh you know Roald Dahl yeah. um sort of Beatrix Potter mm-hmm. type you know very old-fashioned English countryside literature but in a uh done in hopefully a funny hopefully moving way mm. so yeah we'll see who would play Isaac if Ooh. you were to make a film out of it I think the beauty of Isaac is you never get a physical description of him. Mm. Um, you know, you you know he's tired, or he Frumpy. his hair might be going grey, yeah, or he's skinny, or he's put on weight. But I think you know, I I've always tried to keep to not have an image of Isaac in my head, and I, I don't have an image of Isaac in my head. I think there are so many good young British actors that <laughs> yeah. you're totally spoiled for choice. You know, certain conversations happening in the background will probably stop me from saying anyone in particular but um one thing i would say is that the audiobook is done by johnny flynn who is an absolutely fantastic actor who people might have seen in emma as mr knightley or in i mean he's in so much stuff nowadays he's about to be the jude law character in the new uh talented mr ripley tv show but he does the audiobook and he really I went. I, I had. I was lucky enough to go and watch him record for a bit, and he really acts it. And oh, right. he is just—he's a brilliant Isaac, but a brilliant egg as well. So you know, if, if you put me on the spot and I chose right now, I'd say yeah. we could do worse than Johnny Flynn. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, you could have definitely pulled off the audio book. Yeah. But I well, guess. yeah. I've got an egg voice in my head, but I'm not <laughs> going to do it right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> One last question before we, uh, we we wrap it up. Yeah, your own podcast with Pandora Sykes. Yep. Launched in December, which made this a little bit intimidating, sitting down with you doing a podcast. <laughs> um, it's called Book Chat. Tell us how it came to be, what it's about. Yeah, it, I mean, it was funny how it came about because um, Pandora, she's obviously a sort of titan of the books world over here. So she, she chose my my book last year for this book club, um, virtual book club she was doing at the time, um, which involved uh, her interviewing authors. So I was told that Pandora Sykes was going to interview me, and I was all really daunted. Um, but we sat down and we had a really great chat about Isaac and the Egg, but also just about all these other books that we were sort of both reading and enjoying and had been reading. And we just really sort of hit it off as two people who really like reading and really like recommending books to each other we ended up emailing and having a sort of um email chain where we would just tell each other what we were reading uh 
eventually we're like we should do this as a podcast um so now book chat the 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 whole idea behind it is that we'll each recommend each other a book every month and we'll discuss those two books but the the caveat is sort of that they have to be more than two years old so rather than i mean we're both pandora and i were both people who feel that pressure to constantly try and read what's out right now or even you know we get sent proofs and have to read what's coming out next year or you know in a few months so it, it becomes quite hard to to actually appreciate or finally catch up with books that you've wanted to read for ages so that that's sort of the idea you know we we did um some of the episodes the, the next episode we're doing ha- is mainly books from the last sort of 10 15 years within the, the reluctant fundamentalist by mosin hamid oh, uh, and all that man is by david yeah. saloy which i'm reading at the moment but then we also which did an episode, yes which which i'm reading on the train and is is quite a bleak book and uh, i sort of had a really dour face when i turned, <laughs> turned up this morning but a, a chocolate croissant sorted that um <laughs> but yeah um we we did an episode on Wuthering Heights and, and Orlando by Virginia yeah. Woolf. So, you know, the, the span is very large as long as they're not, like, just out. But, yeah, it's it's great fun. And, and we at the end of every episode, we say what we're going to read the next month so people can join in and, oh, and listen to the It's great fun discussion. to listen to. Doing, yeah. Doing a great job. And, I mean, it must have been overwhelming yet exciting when you kind of put this together and yeah. it's doing really well. Well, it's a nice thing about, like, the book coming out and, and finding an audience, fortunately, is, um, you know, these things that I didn't, ever think I'd be doing that I'm doing you know I never thought I'd I'd be podcasting I'm now potentially going to be screenwriting at some point in the future as well so yeah I'll be very excited to see what's happening in a few years time who would have thought right yes exactly yeah definitely not me when that first book didn't sell to anyone Bobby thank you so much for allowing me to delve into the story behind the story it's heartbreaking but it's also a story of hope This best-selling modern-day fable is an unforgettable novel about sorrow, joy, friendship and love, and it's available at all good bookstores, published in the UK by Headline Publishing Group and locally in South Africa by Jonathan Ball Publishers. Regardless of your own personal story, you will benefit from reading the story of Isaac and the Egg. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you, so if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.